0: Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka here with Professor Akil Amar and a special guest, his brother and distinguished professor of law at the University of California at Davis, Vikram Amar. Welcome, Vic.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So, Vic has been on our podcast several times before, and uh, those episodes were very, very popular and and very rigorous, I think. Which is great because it's that's a nice segue into a reminder speaking of rigor that this episode, like all of our episodes going forward, is eligible for continuing legal education credit through the New Jersey Bar Association, even if you are not in New Jersey so just to quickly remind you if you're in New Jersey, Pennsylvania or New York, you can get credit directly um, and if you're in other states, virtually any other state, you can get credit through reciprocity. And the basic way you do this is you go to podcast.njsba.com. NJSBA NJSBA is New Jersey State Bar Association. And you fill in the code, which I will read later in the episode. So we'll be coming back to this later. And thanks again to the New Jersey State Bar Association for arranging this. And actually, Akhil, you and I will be appearing at the New Jersey State Bar Association. Right
2: after the, um, a day after, two days after the oral argument in the Moore case, the tax case that we began to talk about in our last episode, and we're going to be talking about today, focusing on the brief that, the amicus brief that Vic and I filed. He's actually officer of the court, the lawyer of record for our mutual brief. And since you also, and so we're gonna go, Andy, you and I and some of our pals down to see the oral argument, and then shortly thereafter, we're gonna do this event with our friends at the New Jersey Bar Association. But you also talked about how going forward we get CLE credit. Going forward, I just want to remind everyone we were beginning now our second 150. Okay. We I think I think this is yes. 151. Okay. So we fin- so yes, we finished is. our first 150, and now we're starting our second 150.
0: Yeah, and we're so uh, so excited about this brief uh, in the Moore versus United States case that we didn't even bother to talk about it last week when we had our, our anniversary. So I want to get to the brief, but let me just tell our audience a little bit more about Vic, because it's been a couple of years since he was on, or a year anyway, and uh, so some of them may not uh, have been listeners at the time. So you know and also some of you may be confused because when we talked about Vic before he was the the dean of the uh law school at the University of Illinois uh, Urbana um and now he is distinguished professor of law in 2023 at UC Davis where he returned this year and you know distinguished is not being used in the same sense as uh, John Kerry used it um, when he was at Yale and he returned to his father to uh, show him his report card. And uh, his father said, what's this D? And he <laughs> says, D stands for distinguished. Or so. <laughs> so before he was um, at the University of, of Illinois, he was a professor and senior associate dean at King Hall uh, for seven years. Before that, at the Berkeley School of Law, Hastings College of Law, UCLA School of Law. and so he's had, you know, distinguished positions all over the place. And King and, uh, Hall is Martin Luther King,
2: ML King, and that's actually the UC Davis um law school.
0: So Vic's uh, work is all over the place. He's uh, you know, he's he's had a uh a column for a long time on justia.com and actually many of those columns uh were written over there was a period of time when uh Akil and Vic wrote columns together, the so-called brothers-in-law. Um and we have um all those columns, really, up on the akilamar.com website, so you can, you can find them there. And uh, I'm going, he has a very, very lengthy uh, resume, which I'm going to put up on our website so that we can hear from him. So welcome again, Vic.
1: Thanks again for having me.
0: So in writing the brief, um, Vic, why, why did you take an interest in this case? particular?
1: Uh, Well, I think this was a case, unlike the first brief that Akhil and I uh, wrote and filed with the Supreme Court, uh, coincidentally also with the name of Moore, that was Moore versus Harper. That was the very important so-called independent state legislature case where the court uh, ruled the way we hoped they would. This case, Moore versus United States, involving the meaning of the direct tax income taxes. This case really implicated a good chapter that Akhil had written in his book, uh, The Words That Made Us, and there was a case that Akhil featured um, that I think you talked about in your last podcast, Hylton versus United States, that really illustrated why the tax at issue in Moore versus United States was unobjectionable, but that none of the other parties seemed to be talking about. So it was a classic example of a really important originalist perspective because Hylton was from the 1790s, and, and uh, a lot of people would say Hylton was the most important case the Supreme Court decided of any kind before Marbury versus Madison. It was the, the most important really early case, and it illustrates kind of an originalist understanding of the tax powers of the federal government and the, uh, in the original Constitution, and yet no one was really focused on this. So um, Akhil, when he noticed that the court had granted cert on this case, thought this was something that we might be able to add some distinctive value um, for the justices and their clerks. And
2: if I could just uh, jump in, Vic and I, as you mentioned, a long time ago, um, had a column together. Over the years, we've written various articles together. Uh, We wrote one fun one, an important one, on the Presidential Succession Act. We've written other things as well, and we candidly thought we did a good job in Our ISL brief, and we want to keep doing this. Ideally, picking at least one case a year at the Supreme Court where we think we have something to offer to the court, but also gives us an opportunity to work together. He's, you know, a spectacular co collaborator and, and and co-author, and there were some moments that we won't talk about, you know, some, some bumpy moments last time around. But but in general, like we had we had fun doing it, and we were proud of it. Andy, not altogether unlike why you and I do this podcast, because we actually think we're adding value, and we have fun doing it. We have fun talking together. You sharpen. You know, me, you know, uh, sometimes I, you know, may teach you, but we only want to do this if we honestly think we have something genuinely to contribute to the court, not just a, a mere me too brief, p- kind of piling on to what other people are saying. And, and we thought we did here. We th- so this was a perfect combination of a really important constitutional issue in which the other seem to, many people, uh, the other briefs um, seem to be missing the point we could add a distinctive originalist perspective based on our own scholarship in the area so it was it was just like the perfect opportunity for us truthfully there was another case a couple a few other cases that we kind of looked at and we actually decided as it were that they weren't great vehicles, so to speak. A vehicle is an important word that the Supreme Court uses for what cases it should hear. They weren't actually the best vehicles for what it is that we were trying to, to offer. And, and we
1: genuinely want to be helpful to the court. And let me let me just build on that for a moment since you're talking about you know, our amicus brief project more generally going forward as well. You mentioned, Akhil, that we want to provide help to the court on perspectives that other people aren't aren't providing. So we're not trying to repeat the. We're not trying to virtue signal and just be associated with a message of other people. We're trying to provide a distinctive message. But that message often, perhaps not always, but often is going to draw on scholarship that we wrote well before the particular case uh, um, in which we we're filing an amicus brief arose. So we're trying to demonstrate to the court that, that um, there are people out there that are honest brokers that are just wanting to give the court the benefit of their sometimes decades long thought about about issues. And I think that's particularly important today for two reasons, one you adverted to, and that is this is a court that is more or less committed to originalism as a methodology for interpreting the constitution. And originalism is gonna require expertise and history that not all uh, Supreme Court advocates can bring. And then second and related, we have a, a Supreme Court and a Supreme Court bar today. And I'm sure you've talked about this in previous podcasts, both of which are really, really smart but both of which are also made up of generalists. They're not people who have developed deep expertise in bodies of law over the course of many decades. And so a really smart Supreme Court bar and a really smart Supreme Court bench is going to need more and more help from academic experts. And and we want to consistently demonstrate to the court that we are honest brokers for interpreting the Constitution, even in ways that sometimes deviate from our political preferences.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that... Uh you know, you say that both of you have said that originalism, you know, can, can be difficult to to do properly. It can require quite a lot of, uh, you know, historical knowledge and, and a depth thereof. So therefore, it's maybe unrealistic to expect, you know, all the jurists to be able to do it um, unless they have assistance. Um, so that's a service, I would say. You know, I, I think, though, you know, listening to, you're both saying, well, we we don't want to do Me Too briefs. We want to do something, we have something unique to add. And, it, you know, in this case, you start off by saying that everybody else is missing the point. So if that's going to be the way, you, you're always going to be sort of, you know, voices in the wilderness. You know, you ha- how do you avoid being termed sort of kooky or or, you know, just you're always going to be out there saying things that no one else says? In a way, that might you know, push people away from reading, from paying attention to what you have to say. So here's where track record
2: comes in. If we're saying stuff that people aren't saying at the time and that the court actually later comes to say, especially if it cites us or like-minded folks, then we're not crackpots. We're prophets of a certain sort, or at the very least, friends of the court, trying to help the court get it right. So let me give you just two or three Examples of that, as we record this episode, Andy, there's just been an oral argument that's concluded on an important Second Amendment case, a gun case. And when I first started writing, and this will be the fourth major U.S. Supreme Court case on guns. It's a case called Rahimi, following cases called Heller and McDonald and Bruin, authored by, respectively, Justices Scalia and Alito, And Thomas, okay. When I first wrote about the Second Amendment, it was 1991, and I actually don't care that much about guns. I never, Vic knows, we've never had one. Our our, our mom, of blessed memory, was a pediatrician, and she didn't like guns very much because she saw lots of little kids get killed by guns. She didn't love swimming pools either, truth be told, because she saw a lot of kids who got drowned. So so I'm not writing about guns because I love them. I'm not writing about guns because I hate them. My scoutmaster, and I was very close to Mr. Harmon, Vic knows this, you know, taught me all about guns. But I wanted to write about the Constitution, and I was paying attention. and The Bill of Rights, and there are some amendments between Amendments 1 and 4, and I wanted to talk about the Second Amendment. When I did... No one else was talking about this. And I came to the view in 1991 and 1992 that this gun language, or the bare arms language of the Constitution meant one thing at the founding, a slightly different thing after the Civil War, and this is all interesting and important. Now, since then, and no one else was talking about it. The court has actually picked up on, on this, It's t- decided a bunch of cases, in fact, in in The two two of the three cases I mentioned, my scholarship is cited by name uh, in McDonald multiple times, and in Bruin actually a couple of times. And if that hadn't happened, that wouldn't mean necessarily that we were crackpots. But the court itself is, you know, often um, that. That's one area I could pick um, others, but I'm just picking that because of what happened today. But in Moore versus Harper, I'll give you the, the one other example. I.
0: That's a good one because it includes Vic.
2: And it well. includes you. So I hated Bush versus Gore, the concurrence, but all of it, the day it was decided, wrote an op-ed in the LA Times to that effect. I, Vic knows that I have many flaw, flaws. I think he also you know, knows I you know, sometimes have some, some virtues, and, and I don't let things go easily. You know, and I festered on this and I festered on this. And 10 years after Bush versus Gore, I was invited to give a lecture down in Florida, the Dunwoody Lecture, and I used it as an opportunity to relitigate, as it were, all my critiques of Bush versus Gore. And this was all hugely relevant when we saw in the run up to the 2020 election efforts to kind of revive uh, the Bush versus Gore concurrence and Vic at that point said we should write something about this. I said Vic, you know, I I said my piece. I said it back, you know, when Bush versus Gore was decided in 2000, you know, I said it in 2009, 2010. I'm done with it. You know, if people are interested, fine. He says, "No, this is important. They're paying it, you know. I think they're maybe about to do the wrong thing." I Vic want to write something in Supreme Court Review and I want you to write it with me. We, you know stuff and I know stuff and together we know a lot of stuff and we should do this because it's important and it might be helpful to the court. So we wrote this piece together in Supreme Court Review and we wrote an op-ed based on it and Andy you were involved in all of that and with our friend Neil and we placed it in the New York Times and then we ended up writing the brief and you Um, We're involved with that, Andy, and of course, Vic, and we even got our friend Steve Calabresi to join us. And we think the court basically pretty much followed our approach, moved in our direction, moved very far away from Bush versus Gore. So those are two examples of our doing things as academics. And the court is not saying, shut up, you guys are crackpots, we're not interested in hearing what you have to
1: say. And, And indeed, on the Moore versus Harper, Um, Let me just make two related uh, additional points. First, you know, I wrote an article in 1999, before the Bush versus Gore election and before the Bush versus Gore case, in which I talked about how the word legislature throughout the constitution does not always refer to an entity. I tried to debunk the so-called independent state legislature doctrine even before I knew it was going to arise in this setting, which is why I came to Akhil two decades later and said, we need to kind of build on on stuff that we've been talking about for a long time. He's absolutely right about that. He was saying stuff different, slightly different from me, complimentary,
2: maybe even before I was, we would go back and forth. Like I said this, oh yes, but I said this even for, so we have been on the, and, and, and our article and our brief was a nice combination of insights. I think, frankly, Vic, each of us contributed some important, and our friend Steve contributed, great. Steve Calabresi, great stuff on Calder
1: versus Bullet. It was a good collaboration. No question. But here's the key point that I think goes to Andy's uh, original question. The advocates for the respondents in Bush versus Gore quite understandably wanted to win their case and were willing to make certain concessions in the doctrine. Indeed, throwing under the bus, for example, the 2015 case that upheld the Arizona voters' decision to take districting out of the politicians' hands altogether. And the respondents could have won their case against the North Carolina General Assembly without necessarily having to reaffirm that Arizona case, at least arguably. So they were flexible on whether that Arizona case was right or not. We were not. We thought that Arizona case stated the correct constitutional principle that it's up to states to decide how to allocate power to do districting and other federal election regulation. And the court went beyond what the respondents' brief. Argued and ended up embracing our more coherent, more absolutist, but more defensible analytic position, and and that's a huge thing going forward for federal elections. And I don't know that if we and other scholars, I'm not saying we were the only people doing this, but if we and other scholars weren't providing that coherent interpretation, then the court might have been tempted to fashion some kind of compromise. Sometimes the court needs. Outsiders, by by which I mean people who are non-parties, to tell it what the right answer is, and they can decide whether they want to stick to that or, or or fashion a compromise. But they need to know what the coherent position is uh, as a matter of first principles. It's interesting uh- be-
0: because I think this kind of illustrates, uh, um, uh, you know, an interesting structural point about the judicial system. You know, usually. People are taught like okay, laws made through cases, one case at a time, or whatever. You have the advocates arguing arguing for their client, and that's supposed to produce you know the most just result. But when you get to a higher level of generality, which may happen when you get you know up the appellate chain, up to particularly up to the Supreme Court, now you've still got advocates arguing for their client, and that's still their response. And if you don't have you know people like yourselves, if you don't have the system of amicus briefs. And you don't get to that higher level of generality that might make the best law. So I think that it's that, that it's an important service. Right, because, the, in because that,
1: implicit in your, your comment is the court is not simply deciding a dispute. Certainly it is deciding a dispute, and that's why it has a power to hear the case. But what it says goes beyond the dispute in a way that affects all of us and all of us, therefore, need to be heard. And the amicus device is, is one way for that to happen. And
2: what Vic said earlier, just to, and I said it too, but just to connect the dot one last time, we are not hired by any parties, we're not paid by any parties, and we actually certify that under the rules of the court in our amicus brief. And often we've come up with these positions and we, we actually emphasize that in our brief, Long before the case at hand arose, we have a view of what the right legal answer is here and how it connects to other right legal answers about the Constitution more generally. And as Vic said, uh, and we're not criticizing the other lawyers. They have obligations, fiduciary obligations, to their clients to, you know, in the end, win the case. And so they've got a different set of incentives than we do, and frankly, a different possibly set of expertise. So what we are doing is trying to bring to the court's attention, often, longstanding academic positions that we have formulated long before we knew which party in a particular case 20 years later would benefit or not.
0: Okay, so let's get back to the brief then and see what you actually did in this case. And now last time we talked about the facts of the case, and which I'm not gonna rehash now. And, and we talked about the most important case in your view, the Hilton or Hilton case. Um, and we pretty much went through the case. So we, uh, we explained the reasoning of the court. Um, okay, so now it's you know, 1796 or whatever. Um, and the case has been decided and now it's uh, other cases come up and the, the court makes reference to it. Um, so but other things have happened between then and now um, in terms of, of how this case has been regarded and in terms of how this these constitutional clauses have been regarded and that's where the brief goes at this point. You basically have this this heading that says more recent case law should be harmonized with and that's a claim that you make. Um, that that should happen. Um, so, all right, so let's do that. Let's go through you know what's happened since then that you think uh, represents relevant and important uh, developments in the legal story of direct taxation.
1: So the, the court was quite faithful to Hilton for uh, many decades. The income tax that was passed during and to support the union's efforts in the Civil War was upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court in Springer, and the court there quoted Hylton for the proposition that income tax was not a direct tax because it didn't satisfy the uh, definition that was used in Hylton. And it really isn't until 100 years after Hylton, at the beginning of the Plessy slash Lochner era, in a case called Pollock in 1895, the year before Plessy versus Ferguson, that the US Supreme Court abandons or deviates or maybe forgets its teachings in Hiilton and invalidates an income tax on the ground that an income tax is a direct tax and thus needs to be apportioned in order to be to be valid. And there was a a ringing dissent in Pollock from Justice Harlan the Elder, who would of course dissent the next year in in Plessy versus Ferguson as well, and both of those dissents were really based on the ugly slavery history behind some constitutional provisions, including the direct tax provision and the apportionment requirement. And so Pollock was the real kind of fork in the road that the court made a big mistake. And it's, I don't think it's coincidental that it made that mistake at a time when it was doing a lot of things that had no real relationship to the text structure or history of the of the original constitution. And
2: by that fic means the Lochner era, which is um, dawning. And of course, that's 10 years later, but it's another case in which Harlan famously dissents and has now been repudiated by history, as has the Plessy case. Vic also, when he mentioned that income tax statute that was passed during the Civil War, of course, who signed that into law? Abraham Lincoln. So. Our approach not only has George Washington on its side who signed the carriage tax law, not only has Alexander Hamilton on its side who drafted that carriage tax law and defended it in in Supreme Court, not only has the early Congress on its side who voted for that law, not only has all the early justices who unanimously, those who who participated in the Hilton Hilton case, endorsed the Hamilton approach, It eventually will have uh, Madison and Jefferson as presidents on board because they signed into law various forms of a carriage tax. But it has Abraham Lincoln on its side who signed into law an income tax. There are some people today, some scholars, we may talk about them today, Mark Ramsey, for example, he has a thing called an originalism blog. We may talk about him. And he thinks, oh, an income tax is unconstitutional. You might think so, but none of the founders actually, you know, almost none of the founders on reflection did. You asked us about the the, the judicial history, the presidential history, and Vic told you about a case called Springer, which upheld the, the Lincoln-endorsed income tax, and a case called Pollock, which repudiated it in the 1890s, the era of Plessy versus Ferguson, and we talked about this great jurist, John Marshall Harlan, the elder, but let's also not forget Abraham Lincoln.
1: I just want to uh, kind of move the story forward, because Achille said that uh, people like Mark Ramsey contest the constitutionality of the income tax. They wouldn't contest the constitutionality of the income tax today because Pollock was repudiated by, among others, the American people in the adoption of the 16th Amendment in the early 20th century. So the 16th Amendment says that an income tax, uh, a tax on income from whatever its source doesn't need to be apportioned among the states. And in so doing, repudiates Pollock. But the one way, in fact, I think the right way to understand our brief is to say that the 16th Amendment was really not necessary if we recognize that Pollock's understanding of what a direct tax is was itself mistaken, and if the Supreme Court were to correct that mistake made in Pollock and return to the Heilton understanding of what a direct tax is then the 16th Amendment, which doesn't hurt, uh, is simply unnecessary to sustain an income tax of the kind at issue in Pollock or Springer or um, uh, the tax at issue in the Moore case today. The briefs that, that were filed before our amicus they're mostly uh, arguing within the four corners of the 16th Amendment, which is fine. And, and we don't disagree that the tax at issue here could be considered an income tax within the meaning of the 16th Amendment and could be constitutional on that basis. We Just don't think you even need to resort to the 16th amendment because it's simply not a direct tax uh, properly understood. Once you eliminate the Pollock mistake, and maybe one other case where the Supreme Court, even after the 16th amendment, kind of uh, repeated the Pollock mistake.
0: Okay, well, so if you want, if the court uh, were to do what you want it to do, um, which is to say, Hilton is correct and, um and that you don't need the 16th Amendment, okay, um, and that uh, income taxes are not direct taxes, then in effect, you're, you're asking the court to repudiate the Pollock decision, mm-hmm. to say that Pollock was wrong. And Vic, um, and, and Vic now in you're the same the,
2: way, we say that the court has properly said Lochner was wrong. In the same era, many of the same justices with the same great dissenter, John Marshall Holland. In the same way, Vic and I say in this brief, Plessy was wrong. Some of the same people in the majority, the same great dissenter, John Marshall Harlan in in Plessy and in Pollock. So yes, we are saying at your best, Supreme Court, you've admitted that some of the cases from this era were mistaken and good for you just like James Madison actually corrected his earlier mistake when he said, I initially disagreed with Hamilton on on this direct tax stuff, and now I get it, and even Jefferson too. The court has been admirable, we say, in repudiating Lochner and Plessy, and both times siding with John Marshall Harlan, the elder, three times the charm, do it again here. That's actually our um, respectful recommendation to the court.
0: Well, since Pollock... or or even at the time of Pollock, there have been a number of things that have kind of undermined Pollock, right? There have been critics of Pollock um, on the court and off the court, and there have been cases that could arguably be viewed as critical of Pollock or at least, you know, didn't fully embrace it. And then there's also been the American people's verdict on Pollock. So um, can you take me through that? And in particular, to say... What is it that they have found lacking in Pollock? What's wrong with Pollock? Why is it so you know why is it fallen into into such a you know the, into this this category with these these other rogue cases like Plessy and Lochner and even Dred Scott perhaps? So the taxes
1: that were at issue and that were struck down in Pollock um, included an income tax that's clearly constitutional today under the 16th Amendment. So, uh, so the result in Pollock would not obtain today with regard to that tax easily. Then there was a second tax at issue in Pollock that, in which the federal government taxed income that was generated from state and local bonds. And the court in Pollock said that that's disrespectful to federalism for the federal government to tax income that was generated from uh, state government revenue raising measures. And the US Supreme Court repudiated that um, in the mid 20th century. So there's really nothing left of the the holding in Pollock, but more generally, Pollock is of a piece with Lochner in the sense that it kind of made up this constitutional principle of what constitutes a direct tax without any definition that's tied to um, text or history or structure. And in that sense, the Supreme Court has, as in the in the 20th century, kind of been backing away from this formalistic definition of what constitutes taxable income that has no real tie to uh, to what a direct tax was at the, at the founding. So there's a series of decisions in the 1930s and 40s and 50s in which the U.S. Supreme Court says income doesn't have to be recognized to be taxable and the like. So there's really nothing left of Pollock's result. And Pollock's style of reasoning is like Lochner, not something the court says that it wants to do anymore. So it really wouldn't be that unusual or problematic for the court to really acknowledge that and relegate Pollock to the same dustbin uh, that Lochner and Plessy have been relegated to. On that point, Andy, Lochner
2: actually, I think, has been technically overruled but I I don't even remember the case. Vic, I'm not sure, remembers the case. They hollowed it out and then eventually became clear it was basically cast aside. And then they finally started saying, for example, in the Planned Parenthood case, Lochner was totally repudiated. It's on the dustbin of history. Let's take Plessy. The court actually in Brown technically just said, we hold today that in the field of public education, Plessy's doctrine of separate but equal has no place. And they, they hollowed it out. And then eventually they kind of said it, it doesn't apply anywhere in a case called Loving versus Virginia, 13 years later, 1967. So both times they kind of hollowed it out and hollowed it out. And then eventually said, you know what? That was completely repudiated. They said that again in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, that these two cases were ro- uh, Plessy and Lochner were wrong the day they were decided and, and good riddance. We are arguing that the same thing applies to Pollock. It's been hollowed out, and now's the time to actually say really clearly that that Harlan was right three times and not just two, and and for somewhat similar reasons. These, These cases have similar DNA, Pollock, Plessy, and Lochner. Lochner protected fat cats and property too much. And that's the same sin of Pollock just trying to make it hard to have an, an, a redistributive income tax. And Plessy was racially insensitive. It actually didn't attend to the real history of slavery and racial inequality in America. Truthfully, all of that history is connected to the direct tax, and Harlan says that in Pollock, and the court missed that in Pollock. So Pollock has the same flaws, actually, deep, deep down. You ask how to think about Pollock. And it has the same flaws as Lochner and Plessy, the same great dissenter, and the courts in both Lochner and Plessy first hollowed them out, and then eventually said, you know what, those were completely wrong, and we're saying they should do the same thing explicitly now for the
1: Pollock case. We, we really should mention one other case to be fair, um, and that is, even after the 16th Amendment was passed, which repudiated Pollock, the Supreme Court in Eisner versus McCumber um, continued to refer to a tax that was something other than a tax on land or a tax on headcount as a direct tax. So the, the mistake in Pollock survived the 16th Amendment in part because of the way the 16th Amendment was written. The 16, if the 16th Amendment had said the following, it says because income taxes are neither taxes on land nor taxes on capita, they are not direct taxes that need to be apportioned. That would have been better still. But instead, the 16th Amendment simply said uh, tax on income from whatever source is not a direct tax that needs to be apportioned. That left the window open for the same Lochner court after the 16th Amendment to ignore that popular repudiation and repeat the error of Pollock. But that Eisner versus McCumber case has also been hollowed out by subsequent rulings, and the tax that was issued at issue in Eisner that was struck down would be upheld today uh, as well. So, so it's it's really Pollock and uh, McCumber that both need to be cast explicitly aside the way they have been in fact.
2: Eisner versus McCumber. So I, I actually you know, would... I, sometimes Vic said Eisner, yeah. sometimes he said McCumber. It's the same case. It, it's McCumber, is the
1: because Eisner was the yeah. official, and so I should say McCumber.
0: So actually, I'm I'm not sure I agree with what you just said entirely because you're saying that the Sixteenth Amendment says that the income that income taxes are not direct taxes. That's what you just said. Well, they're not subject and, to apportionment, right? It, and that's a different thing to say because it, because it it could very well be that they said that they said to themselves, okay, it is a direct tax, but we want it to be allowed without apportionment. So therefore, we're going to pass this amendment that says you don't have to apportion this. We're not saying anything about whether it's a direct tax or not. But if it is, you don't have to apportion it. And if it isn't, you don't have to as apportion
1: a, it. As a textual matter, it is possible that could say that Pollock was correct, but we want to still allow income taxes as an exception to the apportionment requirement for direct taxes. I, again, if, if the 16th Amendment had been written in a different way, I think we'd all be better off. But I think our big point is that even before the Sixteenth Amendment, as Harlan the Elder pointed out, Pollock was simply wrong, and McCumber's reiteration of Pollock's mistake are simply wrong. Pollock gave no good explanation for why the tax at issue there uh, was considered a direct tax by the majority, thus subject to apportionment. If if you want to make that argument, make it. But Pollock certainly didn't make a good one, and it didn't address the history that uh, Harlan adduced building on justice patterson's opinion in hylton itself that pointed out this whole direct tax apportionment apparatus at the founding was this really ugly compromise and we have to acknowledge it as such and not let it creep beyond its racist boundaries
0: yeah you know i think that um you have a situation where what the you know with the the originalism Provides a certain anau- a certain interpretation of, of what's going on there, and then Hylton you know, backs up that interpretation. In fact, Justice Patterson, you know, who was at Philadelphia, as Achilles pointed out, says this is what we said. And and, and, you know, and, and, and just I'm sorry to interrupt you,
1: but to but it's not just Hylton. it's Hylton's embrace of Hamilton's interpretation, which interpretation was trumpeted in the Federalist Papers that people could see uh, before the adoption of the Constitution. So if the Federalist Papers said something different than Hamilton said in Argument, than the Justices said in Hylton, uh, you know, I think things would be a lot messier, but they all three align so tightly that that that's why they make a strong originalist case. Right,
0: so my point is, just to finish my my pointer, so so for 100 years, you have reaffirmation of this over and over and over again, and now the Pollock Court steps forward, and without giving any explanation why they're departing from this from both the, the originalist interpretation and the ongoing practice, they they change it and that's I think what Chief Justice Roberts was referring to in his confirmation hearing when he talked about the Lochner Court as you know, kind of legislating and from the back. Let me make
2: one other point. Um, we've been very grateful to have already received some attention for from the brief. Uh, I've heard from a lot of tax professors, for example, we may talk about that. Um, our friend Jason Mazzoni said nice things about us. There was a very nice thing said on the um, uh, web by Professor Michael Frumkin at the University of Miami. Others have raised some questions about us. There's one very prominent site on the internet. It's called The Originalism Blog. It's run by, um, in part, Professor Michael Ramsey, and he says something in passing, to be sure, but I want to highlight what he says, and I want to push back on it, on just this point about originalism and an income tax, because here's what he says in a posting on November 4th. He says, I, Michael Ramsey, haven't looked at all the primary sources, but they seem to me to suggest pretty strongly, I'd say, that an income tax is a direct tax, okay? So that's his view. and That's fine. But all I want to say is that's inconsistent with what Alexander Hamilton said three times at Philadelphia in the ratification process in his oral argument than what the justices in Hamilton actually said, capitation and land and basically almost nothing else. and what Abraham Lincoln not just said, but did in signing an income tax, Professor Ramsey, in the 1860s, and what John Marshall Harlan, the elder, you know, said. So, and you could be right, Professor Ramsey, but if you're right, Hamilton is wrong, and the early Supreme Court is wrong, Washington maybe was wrong in signing the carriage law in the early Congresses, and and James Madison was wrong when he changed his mind in, in their favor, and that's all possible. And definitely, you're, you're absolutely saying Lincoln is wrong, because Lincoln signs an income tax that wasn't abortion. Oh, and the Springer Court was wrong. Perhaps all that. But I wonder whether that's really originalism, if all these people at the founding are getting it wrong. Or maybe, actually, we should give a lot of... Way- uh, now, it's true that they're not saying income tax, they're, but they are saying only land and capitation, And then later on, actually, people like Lincoln and and Springer and uh, Justice Harlan are saying, affirmatively, income taxes are okay. They're not direct taxes. It's not just saying only land and uh, head taxes, but income taxes are definitely not direct taxes subject to apportionment. That's what Lincoln says and does, and Harlan in dissent with three other justices in the Pollock case and the Springer majority.
0: Here, I want to get into the, the, you know, comments that have appeared in the media um, lately, you know, uh, but before we do that, and of course, this was appropriate, because that's very much on the point that we were discussing, yeah. Um, but, um, you know, so we talked, we mentioned John Marshall Harlan, that he's object, he's bringing up the, uh, the slavery uh, compromise. This, now, another uh, critic of Pollock, not at the time, but later, is uh, Professor Ackerman. So why don't don't you tell me a little bit about what Professor Ackerman has to say and if he weighs in on this point.
1: Professor Ackerman wrote a really splendid law review article uh, about the Constitution and taxation. And he does some really careful historical and doctrinal work in, in this article in the Columbia Law Review, I believe it is. Among the things he does really well is he highlights the extent to which Harlan's dissent in Pollock and Harlan's year later dissent in Plessy both blow the whistle on the dishonesty that the majority in both cases has in dealing with slavery and the original Constitution. And Harlan harkens back to Patterson's opinion in, in Hylton. And remember, the opinions in Hylton were seriatim that each justice wrote separately. Um, And, for example, one of the things in the brief that maybe we could have made a little bit more clear, Akhil, I know you were talking to me about this, was that Justice Chase's opinion on the uh, direct taxes being limited to land taxes and capitation taxes was somewhat tentative. He prefaced that by saying he's not um, kind of trying to pronounce uh, an absolute interpretation there.
2: We didn't mean to mislead, but we, we, and we probably should have highlighted that more, so I'm glad we're doing that now.
0: Oh, hold on. Before we leave that, Akia, what do you mean we didn't intend to mislead? What is it that you said that, that, you, he said, that you feel was not? did
2: Chase, direct taxes mean only land and head taxes. He says, I'm inclined to think this. Okay, But what he prefaced it by saying is, but I don't give it – I'm inclined to think this, but I don't give it as a judicial opinion, meaning don't hold me to this. This is my you know, kind of pre- preliminary tentative view. It's a little different than some of the other things that I say that have a little bit more force going forward. He agrees totally with Hamilton, but he's he, in effect suggesting this is his – tentative view. And we didn't mean to mislead. I think, actually, Vic, and this was my fault, um, we, uh, we probably should have dropped a footnote or something, just including his language that, quote, I do not give this as a judicial opinion.
1: I agree with that. I, but I, I'm not sure we did mislead intentionally or unintentionally in the sense that- um, He said it. Chief Justice, he said And Chief Justice Roberts, in the um, uh, opinion in Sibelius, the uh, National Federation of Independent Businesses, the Obamacare case, he, uh, too, quotes and cites to chase or cites to chase for the proposition that all the justices who opined on this um, limited direct taxes to taxes on land and taxes on capitation. So, so it's not that we are distorting or twisting what he says. It, we're just, we just didn't point out one uh, gloss. But, but, you know, other briefs like the, uh, the Calabrese, the Mies Calabresi Lawson brief does point that out. And, and so the court will, will certainly know. And we encourage the court to read Hylton in its entirety. Um, so so but, I, I'm, but, not, but Vic, I'm not- Actually, in our brief, and this was your
2: contribution, and I loved what you did here, we quote Chief Justice Roberts, verbatim, on Hilton, Hilton, and I don't think we could have said it better ourselves. He does read the case just as we do. It's the most important tax case of this century. Vic, could we actually go back to the brief, If either you have it or I have it or Annie has it, and just read what we actually said, um, quoting the Chief Justice in the Sibelius case.
0: And in fact, you actually lead off this section too, you know, that about most recent, uh, more recent case law should be harmonized with Hylton, uh, with this. You say, in its most important modern tax case, uh, the Sibelius case, this court properly recognized Hilton's significance and nicely summarized its core holding and key reasoning. As Chief Justice Roberts wrote for the court, soon after the framing, Congress passed a tax on ownership of carriages over James Madison's objection that it was an unapportioned direct tax. This court upheld the tax, in part reasoning that apportioning such a tax would make little sense because it would have required taxing carriage owners at dramatically different rates depending on how many carriages were in their home state. And then they cite to Hilton. And and uh, actually he's citing to uh, Chase's opinion in Hylton. Um, the Hilton court was unanimous, this is still Chief Justice Roberts, and those justices who wrote opinions either directly asserted or strongly suggested that only two forms of taxation were direct: capitations and land taxes and he cites now to uh, Justice Patterson and Justice Iredell's opinion that narrow view of what a direct tax might be might be persisted for a century.
2: Yeah so he reads
0: and then he goes on and he right. starts talking about 1880 right. and Springer and, right. and, he,
2: and and so and then he, he goes to power. And he reads these opinions the same way
1: we do. I too wish we had included it, in part because and this goes back to what we talked about earlier, we really want the court to understand that we're trying to be as straight shooters as we possibly can about all these right.
2: things. Right. And and we're doing this now. I mean people like the, the clerks I hope are gonna be listening to the podcast.
0: One just just to be clear here, you didn't you're not saying like Maya culpa, we said something no. that was wrong. No, it's
2: just it would have been or, or it would have been something. a little bit more complete and precise, and I want to be totally complete and precise. Vic knows I'm a total well, stickler.
0: Let's, let's read okay, well, just to be clear, because uh, I let's say what you do say. Mm-hmm. It's You're, the
2: text of when we quote Chase's opinion.
0: You say, Hylton, and then you say, in Chase's mm-hmm. opinion, Chase concluded. By backing Hamilton's view that direct taxes contemplated by the Constitution are only two, to wit, a capitation and a tax on land.
2: That's a direct quote. And I said he backed him, but I I should have, you know, dropped a footnote and said to be sure he um, said that he prefaced this with the following language, just something like that.
1: And, and by the way, uh, just to be clear, the uh, Mies Calabresi Lawson brief, which we may talk about more later, does uh, kind of mention that as part of an argument that all of the discussion, uh, direct taxes being limited to uh, uh, land taxes and capitation taxes, it was all just dicta. At least in, in Chase's instance, there is this preface, this, uh, this preface language that you could say, well, we should not take it at face value. But that's not true of the other opinions that went on to define direct the way we say. And I just honestly couldn't quite understand what that that amicus brief meant when it said that was dicta. That was not dicta. That was an explanation for why why the United States won and Hylton lost. Uh, Dicta is... Uh, is musings that, that have nothing to do with the result in this case. Um, but if you're going to start calling uh, explanation dicta, then uh, then I think all is lost.
2: Yeah, it's actually, um, now we're in- introducing our lay audience and even the CLE folks to this important distinction between a ratio decidendi, the reason for the decision, and obiter dicta, which is just extraneous commentary. Um and it can't be that any language that a litigant doesn't like, you know, can just be called dicta, okay, if it's actually the, the basic logic and rationale, the reasoning, the explanation of the result.
0: Okay, so we were talking about Professor Ackerman's article and, and you know, linking uh, the, the Pollock decision to the dirty slavery compromise. So it's your... It's your opinion, then, or at least your theory, that if a constitutional provision is implicated you know, in slavery, that that some, that it should be read less expansively. Well, is Patterson
2: and Harlan both do say just that, and 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 we we quote them for saying just as saying just that.
0: Um, actually, and Andy, can English. we read the can we read the quotes, please? Here's a quote from Justice Patterson. Justice William Patterson this is on page 15 of the brief who had been Hamilton's fellow delegate at Philadelphia, likewise argued for a narrow reading of the direct tax category. The provision was made, bracket, by the Philadelphia drafters, end bracket, in favor of the Southern states that possessed a large number of slaves, unquote, and thus should not be broadly applied in other contexts. So that's your Mm -hmm. commentary. Now back to Patterson. The rule of apportionment is radically wrong. It cannot be supported by any solid reasoning. Why should slaves who are a species of property be represented more than any other property? The rule, therefore, ought not to be extended by construction. So so Patterson's argument at
1: the time was um, you shouldn't extend this beyond its slavery foundations. I would argue that once you have the 13th Amendment and Reconstruction, which kind of makes this, uh, this odious uh, uh, compromise beside the point anyway, that's yet another reason for not wanting to construe this provision broadly.
2: Enter Justice Harlan post-13th Amendment, who says almost just that in language that Professor Ackerman highlights and that we echo. So let's now read what Justice Harlan has to say about all this after the Thirteenth Amendment.
0: So this is in the dissent uh, in Pollock. In, uh, in Pollock. Yes, the Pollock major the Pollock majority's ruling wrote Harlan was a quote disaster to the country. Ellipsis. It so interprets constitutional provisions originally designed to protect the slave property against oppressive taxation as to give privileges and immunities never contemplated by the founders of the government. So
2: so he's highlighting the dirty roots of all of this, as was Patterson, and both are saying, don't read it more broadly than you have to. Here are now at least three reasons. Don't read it more broadly, because truthfully it's not that principled provision, it's part of a big stinky slavery compromise. And don't read it too broadly, because it's gonna actually undermine the ability of the federal government to do its core function, which is to raise revenue. Relatedly, don't read it very broadly because direct taxes shouldn't be applied to things that aren't easily capable of census treatment and sensible apportionment.
0: I think on the second thing that you said there, um, it's really important because the the slavery provision, you know, the, the capitation provision, is unique in a sense that, you know, as you're saying, the Constitution is trying to make it easier to tax, or at least possible to mm-hmm. tax, um, for the reasons that you said, it's important for self, you know, self-defense, self you need an army, um, for an army, you need a tax, et cetera.
1: goes back to the preamble. Um,
0: right, it's contrary to that principle to make it hard to right. impose a tax, okay? And so if you have a choice between, the general purpose of the taxation power or the taxation clauses, which is to enable taxation, or the one exception, which is to make it hard to tax so that we can enable slavery, which of those two are you going to choose?
2: Yet another way of putting it is, the whole purpose of the Constitution is geostrategic union and national defense, okay? So you absolutely need broad tax power, but you also must have Kentucky. You know, you can't lose the South. We will have accommodations, you know, for the purpose of protecting slave property, but nothing more. We don't, you know, because once that purpose is solved, that the South has been, you know, properly accommodated in this one concern, don't read it more broadly than that, because you have to do that. The deal is, and the South maybe doesn't come in unless it's got this special accommodation, this special guarantee, but beyond that, why would you do it? Because the whole point is a defensible geostrategic union in which you can have an army and pay for the army and, and have uh, tax, taxes that are easy to uh, raise and, uh, and administer.
0: All right, we gritted our teeth, we held our noses, and we did it because we had to do it, but, there were, but why would we ever want to do that again? Why would we want to and in any you know, other, and, and and other context, noses again.
2: you know, where it's not necessary right. to, to keep the union together to accommodate this special form of property that's just very important to the southern states and without whose protection, you know, they're not going to join the union.
1: Just to, And I think in the same way, you wouldn't want to read the, the so-called three-fifths clause kind of broadly, even if people were making arguments about how it could apply to other, other things, because it was just a necessary stop to get the deal done.
2: And one person who has Um, just that sensibility, Andy, this is what's great. We didn't pre-rehearse this podcast, but, oh, this is what I'm working on this week in the new volume is Abraham Lincoln. He will enforce every stinky deal, including the three-fifths clause. He said, I'm not complaining about that. I'm just mentioning it. It's in the Constitution. Because of three-fifths, the Kansas-Nebraska Act passed. But he says, but that's in the Constitution, and a deal's in a deal. He says that explicitly. And he's right. Without the th- extra votes in the th- uh, because of the three-fifths, the um, repeal of the Missouri Compromise and the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854 would not have happened. He says that's in the deal. He also says, "I hate slavery, but the fugitive slave clause is in the Constitution, and I will enforce that too. But I'm not going to go beyond that. And I actually think there was, was no deal about." slavery in the Western territories and all the rest, and so I'm gonna push against slavery in all sorts of ways that are consistent though with the deal. That's absolutely Lincoln's vision. And so, um, and so it's not now a surprise that he signs into law an income tax statute that is premised on a narrower Hamiltonian Hilton view of the direct tax clause, and with all due respect, Professor Ramsey, exactly contrary to what you said in the originalism blog. And by the way, the folks who disagree with us, who include Steve Calabresi, I actually just taught a class with him yesterday, and he explicitly said, oh, an income tax is okay, a wealth tax isn't okay. And and Ramsey's saying, oh, an uh, an income tax isn't okay, and this is going to highlight a feature You know, once you go beyond our definition, oh, it's, I'm not sure there is another workable definition, and you guys can't agree among yourselves, and that's going to be very relevant when it comes, when it gets to the Supreme Court. We have a definition. It's the Hamilton-Hilton definition. Uh, Direct taxes are land taxes and head taxes and nothing more. Now, once you go beyond that, I don't know. know. Ramsey says one thing, and Calabresi says another, and I don't know.
0: Yeah, we ran into this in the Moore versus Harper oral argument where they started with this, you know, substantive and procedural, you know, distinctions when they're trying to make up these lines that make no sense. Or
1: or the Uh, elected legislature has primacy but not exclusivity. I mean, there was no other – it wasn't coherent. And this is what Vic meant
2: earlier when he talked about how academics of a certain sort tend to have a preference for – Principled understandings and lines, and lawyers trying to win a case, you know, might make this concession or that one. Apparently, in the oral argument in the gun case today, the lawyer for the the individual made all sorts of concessions that didn't make much sense to the justices.
0: Okay, I'm just going to take a moment now to, for our listeners that are uh, interested in getting their well earned continuing legal education credit. For listening to this episode uh once again in order to do that you go onto the uh web and you go to podcast.njsba.com njsba new jersey state bar association and then when asked for the uh code you enter the code which this week is amicus a-m-i-c-u-s amicus amicus And it's not case sensitive, so you can capitalize or not capitalize to your heart's content. Uh, Yeah,
1: I just want to kind of go back to this bigger point, this methodological point that that Akhil was making um, about, uh, and Patterson made and and, and Harlan made about not, and Lincoln made about not wanting to go beyond the terms of a deal that you have to live with, but that was never particularly principled uh, at the outset. You know, uh, I was just preparing for some class teaching, and I was reading all the cases in the uh, Reynolds versus Sims one person, one vote line of cases. And you get to a place where the states are arguing that the one person, one vote a principle should not be applied to the upper chamber of the state legislature because the U.S. Senate is not governed by one person, one vote. And the court rejects that, saying the Senate was a yeah, you know, it was, a, it was a deal that had to be made to get the small states in, but it wasn't a deal that reflected principle and we're not going to extend it to uh, gut what is a principle, which is the idea that majorities should rule and therefore uh, everyone's vote should be counted equally. So I uh, think that's kind of an illustration of the fact that court does this all the time in cabining something that had to be done, but uh, but that doesn't reflect kind of our best and highest tradition of constitutional value.
0: That's a great point. Really illustrates that very well. Okay, so um, so getting back to the brief. So now we've covered Professor Ackerman's uh, comments and and harmonized it with Justice Harlan's. And assent. we should mention that he and
2: has also filed an amicus brief in this case. We'll put it up on the show notes, just as we'll make sure to put up the Meese. Calabrese Lawson brief, which we've already begun to talk about and may talk about some more. We'd love it for our audience, not just to read our brief, but to read some of the other academic briefs, and they can you know, judge for themselves um, which ones they find more persuasive and, and why.
1: Akhil, do you want to put up uh, the links to the Ramsey blog too, or no? We,
2: we will put links up to uh, the um, Originalism blog posts, two of them, um, by uh, Professor Ramsey in a site called the Originalism blog.
0: So, next in this kind of uh, post Heil history, you go through various rulings that have kind of hollowed out Pollock.
1: I want to make one other point about the Ackerman brief because it does a really good job in this regard. We mentioned the Eisner versus McCumber case, which is post 16th Amendment, that um, repeats the Pollock mistake and invalidates a certain federal tax that was not portioned in it, and, and it repeats. Pollock's mistake about the definition of a direct tax. What the court in McCumber says is the particular tax at issue there does not fall within the 16th Amendment because income hasn't been realized, and therefore it's uh, it's an invalid tax. But Ackerman, in his article, is very effective at pointing out that whether or not the tax at issue in McCumber was authorized by the 16th Amendment, that doesn't answer the real question is uh, namely whether it's a direct tax under the original Constitution and whether it's just a repetition of Pollock's mistake. So he he does that uh, uh, for anyone who wants to look at his article. Uh, he does that very, very nicely. Right. And I, I think, thought. Vic, you first said
2: his brief, but especially I think the article and indeed the, the, article, some, the article, not the brief. Some of the um, post Pollock cases, post Eisner versus McCumber cases that have hollowed out Eisner versus McCumber, we mentioned them in our brief, they're also, I think, very well discussed in the Ackerman article, and I think Vic wrote that main, that main section, but very much in reliance on Professor Ackerman's excellent work in this Columbia Law Review article from around, if memory
0: serves, 1999. All right, so then you you kind of conclude this section by saying, okay, mm-hmm. it's been hollowed out and discredited, but the court hasn't expressly disavowed it. And it should, um, and basically you, you cite Dobbs here um, in, in, the, in, the, in the, no, the notion of overturning uh, an incorrect precedent. So just to read from the brief for a moment, you know, like Plessy and Lochner, Pollock and McCumber, that's the sort of post Pollock uh, echo, um, were to borrow language from this court in a recent landmark case, egregiously wrong from the start. Their reasoning was exceptionally weak and the decisions have had damaging consequences. And you cite Dobbs. Time is ripe to lay these erroneous, Plessy, Lochner-era cases to rest.
1: And in that regard, even though, um, you know, sometimes you stick with a past ruling that was constitutionally mistaken because there's been reliance interests that have built up, and sometimes it's more important to be consistent than to be correct. There's just no even credible basis for saying there's any... uh, uh, reliance interest worthy uh, of recognition uh, around Pollock or or McCumber.
0: Good point. Okay, so now we're uh, now you're up to okay. What are what's going on now? What are people saying now? And you know, and what are the arguments that you feel you need to address? Um, and here, you know, most of the briefs, as we as you said, and we talked about last time, focus on the Sixteenth Amendment. So those don't really require you to address that's really not what your brief is about so you don't really go into any of those arguments there might be some good arguments there might be some bad arguments but they have really nothing to do with what you're talking about here so you don't you don't go into that but you do say and if i could just um, give it even though we the, don't do
2: it in the brief a shout out to some of the briefs my friend david Schizer, the former dean of the columbia law school lovely person a dear friend a tax guru he teaches tax He has filed an amicus brief saying, in fact, income was realized in this situation on the facts of the case involving more. There's a question of to whom the realized income should be attributed, but that's a different issue. So even if you thought that income must be realized, income really here was realized in this question of attribution. Other folks have said the textbook definition of income is simply um, whether your wealth has increased, whether formally realized or, or not. That's the, the Irving Fisher definition of income. So we don't get into all of that, but other briefs do. And we do say in our third paragraph or so to be sure we agree with um, the United States position on, on, on all of this, um, that it can be upheld under the 16th Amendment, but we don't think you even need to get there.
0: And then there's the question of okay, you know, maybe you don't need to get there, but where should you go first? We yeah. talked about that a little bit last time. Maybe we'll talk about it subsequently. Okay, but now, so now though, you do feel it necessary to uh, take on the Mies Calabresi Lawson brief, and presumably that's because they're trying to discuss the relevance of They're file tonight, originalists.
2: So. They're very, very c- uh, credible and respectable people, and we respect their position. We think it's wrong, and we need to explain to the court, if we're advocating originalism, why the main originalist amicus brief that takes a different position is, in our view, mistaken.
1: Although we do, okay. we do appreciate that, unlike the other briefs, um, they um, feel uh, the need to deal with Hylton because they understand that an originalist can't just uh, ignore it. Yes,
2: they, see, they understand that that's the key case. And they and they know it's a problem for them, and so they end up saying stuff like, "Oh, the court didn't have jurisdiction. Oh, it's all dicta. We respectfully disagree with that." They make an argument that the facts of Hilton were stipulated to, so that the taxpayer and the government could actually reach the Supreme Court. We've talked Andy before about. 303 case so in effect Heilton says oh I, I want to buy a lot of carriages like 176 or something like that in order to meet a jurisdictional dollar minimum and the court and the, the government says okay we agree that you want you know that um, that's the, that's the tax liability at issue they agree to that perhaps in, just in order to facilitate the Supreme Court's being able to hear the case quickly without that, it would have had to go maybe into state court. It would have taken a little bit longer. It could have gotten to the Supreme Court, but by a more securitist route. But the taxpayer wanted to fight this fight. And the government wanted to fight this fight because they wanted actually a Supreme Court ruling legitimating, validating, upholding this tax.
1: And the Mies Calabresi Lawson Brief says because the case was contrived in this way, that we should not take what the court said seriously.
2: We should just disregard it. And we say, there are all, all sorts of stipulations in all sorts of cases, including the 303 case recently. All sorts of situations where the court arguably doesn't even have jurisdiction, and yet what the court says might be really relevant. In Marbury versus Madison, the court at the end of the day holds it doesn't have jurisdiction, but that doesn't mean that everything else in the opinion is somehow not important and not important to originalists. So what we do say is even if it were the case, that the stipulations were designed in order to facilitate a quick, speedy Supreme Court disposition. First, the court held it had jurisdiction, okay? But in any event, aren't you interested as originalists in what the justices actually said? That they, even, in fact, if they stretched things in order to opine, that's relevant too. They understood just how important the taxing power is. But suppose actually they hadn't said an opinion, and remember, Chase just said, oh, but I don't, this isn't necessarily my judicial opinion. Fine, but isn't it relevant to you that Chase is agreeing with, in in our phrase, backing Hamilton, that Patterson is agreeing with, backing Hamilton, that they all have the Hamilton understanding of this key provision, and not just Patterson, and not just Chase, but also Iredell, Wilson, Wilson and Patterson We're at the Philadelphia Convention. Iredale played a very important role in the ratification of the Constitution. These are leading framers. So even if it weren't in a judicial opinion, we say, even if it were just a newspaper op-ed that they all signed, or four different Seriatum newspaper op-eds, or three, or, or whatever, if you're an originalist, you just don't throw out evidence willy-nilly. That actually, who cares what George Washington thought? Who cares what Alexander Hamilton thought or said in the Federalist Thirty-six? Um, who cares what he said at the oral argument because it was a trumped-up case? You know, who cares what the justices originally said or what the first or the, the second Congress, third Congress, an early Congress, seventeen ninety-four, overwhelmingly said? Who cares that Madison changed his mind on all this or Jefferson? Well, you could think all that, but that's not what an originalist would think. We also say, and this is a doctrinal point, the court has cited Hilton um, many times. I think at my TA, we just said countless. I think my TA Jacobs said we've counted about 20, and that's different cases and not different references, but the court has cited Hilton on countless occasions, including in Pollock um, and Springer before it and McCumber, and has never ever, not once, suggested somehow that this case is not of precedential significance, that this case somehow doesn't count.
0: Yeah, I mean, and you say, well, you know, even if they just said it in an article, like you said, but they didn't just say it in an article. They said said it in 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 an opinion in which they held, they did
2: have jurisdiction, that they accepted the stipulations.
0: And I have to say, they would have the case would have gotten to the supreme court most likely Correct. anyway i it just would have taken longer so you know so why disregard yeah. it uh, I, I it does you know it just doesn't make any sense to me and
1: okay, let me, can i can i ask a question about this this is just a, a legitimate question as far as you know was there any um outcry of criticism after um hilton came down do we know if anybody I mean, again, after Pollock, both kind of sides wanted this
2: fight, so they would have had to be hospotic. They're the ones who pled 176 carriages as to which taxes are are owed. If I'm being candid, my suspicion is all of this, including several other things that Professor Ramsey says uh, truthfully in the Originalism blog, is based on a, an eight-page discussion in a great book by a great scholar, someone I hold in the highest regard. The late great David Curry, former Henry Friendly clerk. The book is called *The Constitution in the Supreme Court: The First Hundred Years, 1789 to 1888*. And David Curry goes through all the important early Supreme Court cases and has a little discussion of each one. And Chapter Two begins with a discussion of Hamilton and. David Curry taught jurisdiction and he was a jurisdictional stickler and he notices, you know, that this is, you know, a weird stipulation. In fact, I think he says something like, they didn't even do the stipulation right from a technical point of view because the statute says you need more than X and 176 actually only gets you to X. They should have pled 177. So that's the kind of, you know, fun um, mind and intellect David Curry offered. But I think frankly that both Ramsey and Calabresi, Lawson Meese are, are in part building on Curry and not on anyone who at the time said anything like this. And Curry's analysis, with all due respect, I read what he wrote probably eight times before I wrote the relevant discussion in the words that made us. And I think he kind of misses the point, um, misses the boat, doesn't really talk about the slavery angle in a big way, it somehow says that functional, sensible constitutional argumentation is somehow unprincipled, which it's not. It's just good structural arguments. But I think both the Calabrese-Meese-Lawson <laughs> brief and the Ramsey blog posts are responding more to eight pages of curry than to anything in the original historical materials. And here's one final way of saying that. No one paid any attention to Hilton in most scholarship. No one who took constitutional law, one, got taught the Hilton case. I surely wasn't. I don't teach the case. I only came to understand it when I wrote this book with a chapter on on Hamilton, because I, I read Ron Chernow's Biography and realize how important Hilton is to Hamilton, and then I begin to think more about how important taxes are to the whole founding scheme. Why does Curry, he's the only one, they're focusing on Curry because no one else actually has done any analysis of Hilton. Curry does because he works through every early Supreme Court case. One final way of putting it people who know tax tend not to be con law experts. People who are con law experts tend not to be tax gurus. So there's not very much out there on Hilton, but there is curry.
0: Well, what's your point there, Akil? Before, just to clarify this Rick, for a second. What's your point there that, that the fact that no one teaches it means that it's not controversial, that it's self-evident? No, my, my, my point— Because it is—because you do say in the, in the brief, you say, over the centuries, this court right. has cited Hilton right. in countless my, 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 cases. My... And then you go on to say it has never suggested— that the case is somehow right. non-presidential. My, my, my so point is,
2: I believe that Ramsey is building on Curry, and he says so explicitly. He's getting it from Curry. I think that's also where Calabrese, Mies, Lawson are getting this idea that it was a trumped-up lawsuit, a contrived lawsuit. And the reason I can have a certain amount of confidence about that, where my friend Steve Calabrese is coming from, is there's nothing else out there in the literature, and this is front and center in Curry's eight pages, because Curry was a Fed juror guy who was very interested in the jurisdictional wrinkles of the case.
1: But, but I think, I thought, Andy, you were asking, Akhil, you know, what's the relevance of the fact that, that Hilton isn't taught or Hilton isn't taught right. in, in first-year con law classes? I mean, I think the relevance of that is, you know, it goes back to your question about whether coming in with this unique perspective makes us look unusual. You know, if 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 Hilton is so central, why has no one really heard about it? Why why has no one thought about it as as a hugely important constitutional interpretation case? And the answer, I think, Calchius says, is because tax people and con law people are are not really um, often that aligned. I want to just go back to David Curry's work for one minute. From what you've described him and read to me, it doesn't seem particularly originalist in important ways, even though he's plumbing the original um, early founding materials. You said, for example that Curry criticizes Patterson's opinion, defining direct taxes as being those being limited to real estate and and capitation, because, because Patterson didn't cite anything for his definition as if there is something to cite. I mean, uh, Ferrand and the records aren't available yet. Patterson was there. So presumably he's citing his own understanding, which I would think would be relevant to people who care about originalists since he was one of the um, original understandings. I
2: love David Curry, but sometimes he could just be like snarky. Here's the sentence. It's from page 33 of the Curry book. And he says, Patterson referred to, quote, Theory and practice without expanding, expounding the one or illustrating the other. And he added without citation that a provision that the provision had been inserted during the convention to allay southern fears regarding taxes on land and slaves. Okay. And you're saying, like, what was there to cite? And he was there. So this is a little bit weird. Now, um, I mentioned Mike Ramsey. He in the post, and this is a post out of the University of San Diego Law School, um, quotes. His great colleague, who's also an originalist and at San Diego, my very dear friend, Mike Rappaport. I was at Mike Rappaport's wedding. He was my classmate. I asked him of all my classmates to be the person who edited my own student note, because I really love and respect Mike. Mike has written the following, and Ramsey quotes it. Mike Rappaport adds... Mm-hmm. And this is from Rappaport. Some years ago, I, Mike Rappaport, had the opportunity to review and write about Hilton in this article. He links to an article. I remember the performance of the justices to be extremely disappointing, not for the result, but for unbelievably poor legal analysis. Now, I do not agree with this. And boy, if you're an originalist, it takes a little bit of audacity to say, you know, I'm sitting here in the 20th century, 21st century, and, and I understand how to do legal argument better than all the justices who were there, some of whom were in the room, some of whom are named, you know, Wilson and Patterson and Iredale and Chase. Oh, and I know better than Hamilton. They're buying Hamilton's, not just bottom line, but his rationale, which is to repeat structural and functional and not just, you know, making stuff up, illegal. But I promise you, Rappaport is absolutely channeling there the structure of David Curry's critique in which he says, this is just all policy analysis. David Curry is wrong about that. This is not mere policy analysis. This is actually sensible, structural, holistic constitutional analysis in which, for example, yes, you have to talk about slavery because it says three-fifths in the direct tax clause, And three-fifths is about people who aren't slaves. I mean, who aren't free people. Um, and it's connected elsewhere, three-fifths is talking about a census and apportionment. And those are all words in the Constitution that you need to understand holistically. Rappaport, my, my friend Mike Rappaport, my friend um, Steve Calabresi thinks that all originalism is or principle legal analysis is, is like picking a word or two words and coming up with a definition, direct tax, in a vacuum, in isolation. you know finding it in a dictionary, finding it in the work of Adam Smith or Samuel Johnson from Britain. No, direct tax could mean lots of different things. And Adam Smith is writing way before Philadelphia. And Samuel Johnson's dictionary has nothing to do with the practical problems that they were trying to solve at Philadelphia. They came up with an idea of direct tax for certain purposes to Make taxes generally easy, but to keep the South on board because without the South on board, you know the whole Union collapses, join or die. Here's actually what happened at Philadelphia. I just want to read you, you know, but they didn't have access to all these notes. They weren't published until 1840, until James Madison's death, but, but here's actually what one famous framer says at Philadelphia. At one point at Philadelphia, Rufus, Delegate Rufus King asked, what was the precise meaning of direct taxation, tax? Uh, no one answered, and no one answered because it's kind of complicated, it involves many working parts, some of which are a little bit stinky, having to do with slavery, having to do with workability and a census and apportionment and all sorts of things. Welcome to tax law. Welcome to legislation, which is sometimes inv- involves a, a compromise. And, and Patterson says all of that, and he's being honest. And, and Curry body slams him for it in the book, criticizes him. You can do that. But now you're not being an originalist because you're not taking seriously Mike Rappaport, Michael Ramsey, Steve Calabresi, what actually the people who, who generate the Constitution are saying in the you know, that's time. Alexander Hamilton, Iredell, Chase, Wilson.
1: So I just want to kind of double back to make sure that this thread isn't lost. To, to critique the Hilton, Hilton justices for defining direct tax in part by reference to what would actually work as an apportionment scheme To limit direct taxes to those that are related to a a sense of how apportionment would work, that's not result orientation. That's not getting to a a result that you want. It's, It's reading the direct tax concept and the apportionment concept, which were yoked. Um, uh, together and uh, and asking, well, we have to inter or, or saying we have to interpret one with an eye toward what the other means, uh, and with a larger acceptance of the premise that the Constitution permits the federal government to raise revenues for all of these grand purposes. So I don't know that that's kind of picking and choosing or or uh, just kind of getting to whatever result you want so much as trying to read all of these provisions. Uh, in tandem, that were part of this this kind of uh, messy compromise.
0: So Akil, uh and 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 Vic, but especially Akhil, has been using the word structural and functional a lot. And uh, you know, I think you just kind of explained uh, Akhil in your in your missive there about um, uh, structural. You talked about you know that apportionment appears elsewhere in three fifths and so forth. And these are structural uh, aspects of the Constitution which are They're all relevant. interconnected.
2: They're all part of a system. Yes. And David Curry was a great man, but I'm not sure he actually understood that tax system that they were trying to create. It, I, the pages of the, the book, which is an excellent book. I've read it many times, and, and I think it's one of the, the really the, the best the re- readers to know. Yeah. They could read the book. It's pages 31 to 37, so seven pages, of a book, The Constitution in the Supreme Court, The First Hundred Years, 1789 to 1888. But what there isn't in these pages, and what I'm saying is you need to understand how everything fits together. And, and Curry doesn't understand any of that. He doesn't offer a good, sensible definition of, of how direct tax would be um, fits with the apportionment requirement. He somehow thinks the apportionment requirement is irrelevant to figuring out what a direct tax is. But the rule is direct taxes have to be apportioned and you can't think about, you know, one side of the coin without understanding the other side of the coin cuz they're both part of the same coin.
0: So there's structural uh considerations in figuring out what apportionment means and what and so forth. But there's also functional considerations because when you actually uh, apply questions of apportionment and other other aspects of this to what it would actually mean to 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 carry this out in practice, what kinds of problems does it create? So you talked about the zero problem and that sort of thing. and these are functional considerations how do, How would this function? And so that's I think I just want our audience to understand what you're referring to. Mm-hmm. When you talk about structural and, and functional And, thi- and this uh, is the place
2: to repeat, we had it in our last podcast, the key language of Alexander Hamilton, who in my view was the greatest constitutional lawyer of the founding period and, every, and who knew taxes backwards and forwards and sideways and who understood national security and to whom everyone else from Washington on down deferred. And he's the one who argues the case and here's you know, what he says. And this is exactly the intuition that my friend Mike Rappaport and David Curry are critiquing, and I'm with Hamilton and not with them. And they're saying this is just policy-oriented. No, it's not. It's good, sensible constitutional analysis. And in any event, it's originalist because Alexander Hamilton is the original, you know, (laughs) he is the original, period. Okay, here's what he says. Too broad a definition of direct tax would, quote, defeat the power of laying, unquote, the tax altogether. Back to Hamilton. This is a consequence that ought not to result from construction, close quote, if you can find a better definition. No construction ought to prevail, calculated to defeat the express and necessary authority of the government. It would be contrary to reason and to every, sound, every rule of sound construction to adopt a principle for regulating the exercise of a clear constitutional power which would defeat the exercise of the power. And, and they're saying that's result-oriented, and I'm saying, no, that's holistic, structural, functional, John Marshall and McCulloch-like reasoning.
1: Yeah, I, that's what saying. as you read I'm saying this is so common this is exactly analogous to what John Marshall says in McCulloch versus Maryland that how could we construe the provision the, the powers that have been given to Congress in a way that denies Congress the ability to uh, accomplish the objectives that Article 1 lays out and the most important
2: objective is to have one nation Okay, not two or three because if you have two or three, you have land borders, and then we're going to die because one of them is going to at some point ally with some foreign power and slice and dice the rest. So we have to have one nation that's capable of having and fielding an army and paying it. Now, in order to have one nation, you have to have the South on board, and so actually their needs are going and interests are going to need to be accommodated. But subject to that, you want to make taxation as easy as possible. That's the problem with the Articles of Confederation, is you can't raise any money, and that's why Valley Forge happened, and we're going to lose the next war. And Washington understands that, and Hamilton understands that, and you will not see this in David Curry's analysis, because he's not actually seeing the big picture. He's just looking at case after case after case, and doing a law prof- 20th century law professor thing, saying, oh, they could have said this, they could have said that, they didn't cite this. You can do that, but that's not actually With all due respect, Mike Rappaport, with all due respect, I don't know Professor Ramsey as well, that's not originalism. You say you are an originalist blog, but actually you're criticizing the greatest originalist for the most important thing he ever championed at the Supreme Court. It was his only oral argument, and oh, he was damn proud of it, and he won it unanimously, and Washington had his back. At every point, Washington said, you, you think this is the right kind of tax? I support it, but now actually you need to explain that to the justices. Please come out of retirement to, um, to do this, and he did it. And if you're originalist, you have to be with him. And, and my friend Steve Calabresi he says, oh, an income tax is okay, but a wealth tax isn't, you know. And, and Ramsey says, oh, an income tax isn't okay. I asked Steve point blank in class yesterday, Steve, was Alexander Hamilton wrong. Here's your position. He didn't say what we said he said, or he did say it and he's wrong. And Steve said, he's wrong. I said, fine, I rest my case because no position is perfect. But if you're a serious originalist and you're reduced to the position that Hamilton and therefore Washington is wrong on the very biggest thing of all, you know, armies and union. Oh, wow.
1: So, So, okay, let me ask, what is Steve's definition of direct? If it, if it doesn't include an income tax, but it does include the tax uh, uh, wrongly, to his mind, upheld. In, in I'm
2: going to invite him to come on the podcast, um, and I'm going to invite, we should invite Professor Ramsey, if he's so inclined. Mm-hmm. We should invite anyone who has a, a, a better definition to, to offer it. You know, say, I'm better than Alexander Hamilton, and here's my definition. Because honestly, he said it, and I didn't understand it, and several students Pushed back on him in class, saying, "Well, that doesn't make sense because of this and this, and if that, then and so on." So, but we'll invite him to come on. But you, neither you nor I, when we read his amicus brief, really found a tight, coherent alternative definition.
0: Back to the Mies uh, Calabresi uh, Lawson brief. So they have. So there's two more things that you take them on for. One is, you say that um, that that they suggest that the carriage tax. Uh, taxed use rather than ownership or possession. So first of all, why do you disagree with with that assertion? And second of all, why does it matter?
1: Well, I think we disagree with that assertion because the way the carriage tax upheld in Hilton Hilton was written, it taxed anybody who kept or owned a carriage for the purpose of private use, Uh, But it didn't tax the actual use. You could own it and never use it, and you'd still be subject to the tax. You could use it a lot, and you wouldn't pay any more tax than someone who used it a little.
0: Okay, and why does this matter?
1: Well, it matters in part. I mean, I'm not sure it does matter, but to to the other side, it seems that their definition of what uh, what might be uh, a direct tax might turn on some of these nuances. It's hard to it's hard to explain why it would or wouldn't matter unless I have a competing definition of a direct tax to to kind of evaluate, which they haven't really offered. But but if that's part of what they think is important in defining a direct tax, they're just wrong uh, in in the way they structure this. I mean, I, I guess the idea would be you know again a lot of the opponents in, in uh, of the federal government and more are looking down the road and not wanting to allow the federal government to tax wealth and wealth is more about ownership than activity and so if they say this tax upheld in in Hilton was an activity based tax then it's to one side and is not really precedent for a wealth- based tax and now you can more, more see more. now
2: you can see why Steve says oh an income tax that's okay you're taxing some sort of action or activity but a wealth tax a flow the spigot but not the, the stock the, the water in the bathtub so now you might see but but again I don't think it didn't seem very coherent to me but um, we want to get a clearer definition but you can see my he might say oh income tax is perfectly okay okay, because that's, you know, it's, it's an, you're taxing something looks like action. Ha- think something's happening. Income is coming in. Income, okay? Whereas wealth is just stasis. Nothing is happening. So that's why he might think income taxes are different from wealth taxes, but I don't know what Professor Ramsey thinks because he says, oh, income taxes well, it, are it, unconstitutional
1: it, it, be, 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 before bad, like- the 16th Amendment. But on that important point, I want to go back to National Federation of Independent Businesses, Sibelius, the Obamacare case, because you'll remember the court there, or at least five justices, said that the mandate for ownership of health coverage uh, couldn't be regulated under the Commerce Clause because it involved inactivity, not activity. And yet Roberts upholds this as a non-direct tax, even though it doesn't involve doing anything. Really? It involves simply some- Brilliant. Simply not doing
2: anything. Brilliant. So Roberts has already sided with us on the activity that, inactivity. That,
1: that's to, and indeed, indeed, I think the the tax upheld in Sibelius was of sort a wealth tax it's basically you're withholding your money rather than spending it on health care and you can be punished or not punished but you can be taxed for holding for hoarding your money That's instead of spending it on this very particular interesting
2: thing. but but you're being taxed for a certain kind of inactivity and it didn't need to be a portion so they've already decided that in our favor um great point Vic.
0: okay and then the last point i'll just read what it said uh, this uh this part that you have, because it makes a number of points so the MCL brief suggests MCL that is the real Mies Calabresi for... Lawson brief, right? Suggests that real estate accounted for much more wealth in the late 18th century than it does today. The brief goes on to argue that today's taxes on financial instruments, which the brief views as the 21st century equivalent of large real estate holdings, should be immune from federal taxation absent apportionment. This argument's basic historical and uh, and the logic premise fails. Real estate taxes at the founding were subject to apportionment, which would make them difficult to levy, not because real estate represented great wealth, but because real estate often represented subsistence assets. In a world where a middling landowner who inherited a family home and some acreage could not easily sell or borrow on this land to pay real estate taxes, And thus save the homestead national real estate taxes threatened not to soak the rich but to drown the cash poor the carriage tax in hilton was upheld precisely because it was a tax that burdened only the wealthy those with the means to own or possess avoidable luxury items like carriages so so, all right. So, what point are they trying to make that you're refuting here, so, and why doesn't matter?
2: Yesterday in class, when Steve and I we co-taught and we actually had an impromptu debate, which we're going to continue next week in class, Steve said, "Oh, well, you know, an income tax is not really um, a burden because you're making income and you you just uh, divert part of the the income, and a tax on carriages is not really a burden and therefore not really direct. It's easy to avoid; just don't own a carriage." I said, "Well," A wealth tax, you know, um, you have a lot of wealth, just you know, pay the person, you know? And then he says, oh, and then someone asked him about, well, what about a tax not on, because so, he says, he admitted, he said, the, the carriage tax was a luxury tax. And I said, Steve, you know, you know, having a lot of wealth, that's a luxury tax too, you know, functionally. And then um, someone asked him, a student named Philip, I think, asked him, um, well, what about taxes on whiskey? And and she says, well, those were okay, um, because you might think those were even kind of subsistence items. The West, you didn't have a a lot of cash, and and whiskey was basically, you know, what you you did have. Why wasn't that improper? And she says, well, you might think that having a lot of whiskey is sinful, and, and sin taxes are okay. They're excise taxes. I said, Steve... A lot of Puritans might think, you know, actually having too much money is actually sinful. Jesus actually says to the rich man, it's easier to, to take have a camel go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to go to heaven. I honestly didn't quite understand, you know, all of Steve's points here. What we tried to say in our brief is Hamilton expressly says, here's one of the reasons why the carriage tax is okay because it's a luxury tax. And that's a, and luxury taxes are perfectly sensible and fine taxes, and you can avoid them without great hardship. Sell your carriage mm-hmm. if you don't want to pay the carriage tax. Sell your lot, yacht, your, your Learjet, your Rolls Royce. But if that's the idea, oh, you know, a wealth tax isn't particularly a problem because you, you, you have a lot of wealth. And it's especially easy in today's world to monetize all sorts of things because you can borrow against it, our markets are much thicker. It's, um, if you need to get cash out of a, a, a piggy bank, there are many options you have today that didn't exist at the founding. And so there really isn't a hardship in any of these taxes to the extent hardship is somehow corrected, connected, on your view, Mies Calabresi Lawson, with directness.
1: And and it is even connected on our view of a sort. I mean, if we're trying to explain why real estate is treated distinctly, it's because of this hardship. uh, And so if
2: anything, though, if times have changed, if anything, we should shrink the real estate wrinkle because actually real estate uh, rather than expand it to because why shouldn't we why should we not expand the direct tax category because of what Patterson says is actually a bad Principle. It was necessary to accommodate slavery, but not. Um, we shouldn't go beyond that. And Hamilton says that too. He says it's actually not the proper principle. Don't read it more broadly than you have to. So, if anything, you can say if we're actually taking the founding concept and applying it in a totally different world, instead of expanding real estate. You know, real estate is a metaphor for all wealth. No, we should contract it because actually real estate then was very illiquid and created hardships, but today it's very liquid and doesn't create hardships.
1: And and Hamilton's point that the carriage tax... Uh, was a luxury tax. And and that feature was really important. It wasn't just Hamilton. At least one of the justices wrote about how they could live without a carriage. And and therefore, this really wasn't a a tax that imposed. Iredell
2: was so struck by that part of Hamilton's oral argument that in a letter to his wife, he said, this was the most moving and affecting and persuasive part of the argument. When Hamilton himself said, you know, I used to have a carriage. I gave it up and it wasn't a hardship. My life is is just fine without it.
0: Okay, so this notion of that uh, direct taxes should apply to things that are, uh, that you you say that you can't avoid, um, taxes you can't avoid, um, like a tax on you. You can't, like, get rid of your head. You know, or something, and in in at the founding, it's hard to get rid of the land
1: without without no. without completely becoming impoverished.
0: Because you, there there are no amortized
2: mortgages. There's um no there's not a lot of hard currency. It's just a it's a cash poor world. It's a very different world.
0: Okay, so now you're you know this brief is an an argument. Of course, it says it's an argument. So there's also gonna be an oral argument. So let's say that uh, you're the advocate and now you've got 30 seconds left in your, in your time before the court. What's the last thing you want the justices to hear?
2: Alexander Hamilton. My name is Alexander Hamilton. Um, and there are a million things I haven't done, but just you wait. Listen to Hamilton and Washington. The Constitution is about them if you're originalists that's what you do also listen to Madison and Jefferson they got it wrong but then to their credit they actually admitted they got it wrong and, and and that's what you should do in regards to Pollock and McCumber oh and by the way don't forget Abe Lincoln and the first Justice Harlan
0: Vic anything to add to that
1: Well, just because I know this this court cares a lot uh, about its own past cases as well as originalism, uh, I would just uh, encourage them to do what we said in the brief, and that is they should all go back and read the Hylton opinions themselves. As Akhil and you mentioned earlier, I doubt that that most of the clerks um, for all the chambers uh, encountered Hylton in their con law or maybe even in their tax law classes. So its its importance may not be, even though the Supreme Court cited it, even though Roberts mentioned it in, in Sebelia, the NFIB case, it's still not something that is common knowledge the way it should be. So people should look at it for themselves. Read that on the one hand, read Pollock and McCumber on the other hand, and tell me which one seems more authoritative.
2: Uh, one l- point on that, because Andy, we're hoping, candidly, that after oral argument, if Justice Breyer... Um, happens to be in town, we'd like to pay a courtesy call to him. I clerked for him. Vic clerked on the Supreme Court. I didn't. For, he clerked for Justice Blackman. But when I clerked for then Judge Breyer, and he always had read the briefs with great care, um, he often at oral argument asked the lawyer a question. He says, if I go back to my chambers and read one, ca- if, you know, read one case with special care which is the case that you want me to read especially carefully? And he'd ask that of each side, okay? Because because I only have a limited amount of time. I've already read the briefs. I've already thought about a lot. But you tell me, I will I will reread. You know your best case. You know, tell me what it is, and then he would ask the other side that. So yes, please read Hilton.
0: You know, it just uh, <laughs> reminds me when we were at the Moore versus Harper argument, and and I think it may have been Justice Barrett that asked. Uh, the attorney for uh more you know what's your best case and he said palm beach county and i i said okay we won this case
1: (laughs) a case in which the court says it's making no law at all okay so
0: all right well until next time you know we you just had jefferson and madison two great minds and we heard vic amar and akil amar two great brothers and great minds so Thank you very much. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much.
2: And the world's going know your name, What's your name man? Alexander Hamilton. My name is Alexander Hamilton. And there's a million things I haven't done, but just you wait, just you